Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Order of Melchizedek. And uh, in looking at this subject, there's a lot of mystery that surrounds uh, the man and the priesthood whenever we talk about Melchizedek. So hopefully today we want to unravel some of this mystery and uh, this mystery and, and because there's so many uh, you know uh, unknowns about this particular man it has given rise to some of the strangest and most bizarre ideas that exist about uh, Melchizedek and uh, some of these ideas are actually quite common today many ideas exist about the man about the priesthood and what it all means and so we want to uh, see what we can discover uh, together. The reason many times some of these ideas actually are used to justify other doctrines and other beliefs. And so it's not just, well, let's find out the right idea. Because what we believe, many times what's believed about this particular man, this priesthood, is the reason why other strange teachings are reached and substantiated. And so it is important to understand, as far as we can tell from the scriptures, uh, what God has revealed about that. Uh, I'll give you a few quick examples of some of the strange ideas that exist uh, about this particular man. Uh, the Mormons who uh, follow uh, Joseph Smith, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but they believe that Joseph Smith was not only a prophet, but he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You realize that? Well, that's, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but anyway, it is, it is the case. It's, it's, not, it's not true, but uh, this is, I guess, somehow, some. I don't know all the reasons for that, but this is what they believe, that it gives him maybe extra status or extra credibility. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of why that might not be the case, but we'll see what the Bible says, and I'll automatically uh, disprove something like that. But that's one of the ideas that exists. Another idea is that Melchizedek had to be a supernatural uh, sorry, not a human being, a supernatural being of some sort because of his description. Or in other words, that he could not be human. He had to be some other order of being because of the description we have in the scriptures about him. We're going to see if that's the case or not. And we'll see that he actually had to only be a human being. Another belief is that Melchizedek was actually Jesus Christ himself appearing during that time, the time of Abraham and uh working and functioning in that capacity and uh, that is not the case either we'll see why as well simple reason which we'll explore in detail more is that uh, a type and an anti-type cannot be the same thing or the same person if Melchizedek was a type or a representative for Christ then Christ does not represent himself. He does not typify himself. He is the fulfillment of that. Another uh, popular one and this one is uh, one that I hear uh, a lot from people who believe in the Trinity is that Melchizedek was actually the Holy Spirit. Maybe you heard that one. And uh, again, this belief makes a few assumptions. The first assumption, of course, is this, the Spirit is someone else, someone other than the Father or the Son, and that the Spirit was the one who was at that time working in that capacity. Uh, that throws all kinds of problems into the plan of salvation and hopefully we'll see that. But again, the founding or the, the assumption at the root of that is that the spirit is someone else. The Bible does not support that. Uh, and so, of course, that could not be the case. So why do we have 
such little information about this man and what can we learn from it and what relevance does it have for us today? Can we dispel some of these misunderstandings and what does a correct understanding help us in? Now, of course, uh, there are a number of priests in the scriptures and we know that the priesthood of Christ is one of the most important elements of Christ's ministry and work on our behalf and his priesthood is linked with this man. Melchizedek. And this is where it becomes vitally important, particularly when we uh, believe that the foundation of our faith is the truth about the sanctuary or the sanctuary doctrine or the teaching about the sanctuary. And when we talk about the sanctuary many times uh, in a lot of people's minds, the sanctuary doctrine means simply a building in heaven. There is, there is a lot more to just a building in heaven. It's not just about that. The sanctuary doctrine centers, uh, now there is a building in heaven, don't get me wrong, but it centers on the work that is being carried out there by our high priests. The ministry of high, our high priest in the sanctuary is what's of significance to us. Because practically, uh, the structures or buildings in heaven have no practical bearing on us on earth unless something that is happening there affects us. And this is where the priest comes in. And so that's the key when it comes to, to the sanctuary. Now, when we look at the Bible, there are a number of priests that are mentioned in the scriptures. Uh, and in the patriarchal age, it was customary that the head of the family functioned in that capacity. It wasn't mentioned or wasn't referred to as a priesthood, but usually the head of the family uh, was the spiritual leader who would officiate on the behalf of the family as far as offering sacrifices and so on. We see that in the story of Job. If you remember, the Bible says that Job was a perfect man and that uh, at the end of, of days, he would offer up sacrifices on, the, on the behalf of his children, just in case any of them might have sinned. And a number of different patriarchs reveal this, this trend, the spiritual leadership. Now, this was officiating in part uh, in a priestly capacity, but it wasn't referred to as such. But the first priest we have mentioned in the scriptures is actually Melchizedek, the one we want to talk about today. And it's mentioned in Genesis 14 and verse 18. This is what it says. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. And the timing here was he came out to meet Abraham with this bread and wine when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings uh, of Sodom uh, uh, who had captured uh, the men of Sodom and his cousin Lot. And this meeting happens between Melchizedek and between Abraham. He is the very first person who is mentioned as a priest of the most high God. And this is what we want to explore a little bit about this particular man. Uh, who is the second priest that's mentioned in the Bible? Does anyone know? Okay, Aaron. Aaron is a very popular one. There is one actually before Aaron, between Melchizedek and Aaron. If you remember, it was actually Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, or Raul, as he's referred to elsewhere. Uh, he was referred to also as a priest as well. And uh, there are very interesting parallels and it's interesting description as well of, of this man, Jethro. You can read about it in, in Exodus. Uh, he's mentioned there. He's actually very similar to Melchizedek in a lot of ways, but we have certain details mentioned and recorded about this man, Jethro. Uh, and we're going to explore a little bit later uh, the, perhaps their significance, but uh, we have a record of, of his children and, and a particular lineage or ancestry that he comes from. He was a priest in Midian, so he was from the Midianites. 
But anyway, we want to explore uh, Melchizedek. The book of Hebrews records more details about him. And this is where the, the mystery begins in one particular verse that Paul records. Hebrews 7, we'll read verses 1 down to 4. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And this particular verse, verse 3, is what uh, generates a lot of strange ideas about this man when it says that he's without mother uh, or father, without descent, without end of life. This is why a lot of people say, well, he, might, he, had, he couldn't be a human. He had to be some supernatural being. He had to be this, that, or the other. And all kinds of different uh, interesting and even bizarre explanations. What does this verse mean? What is Paul actually trying to say? What Paul is simply recording is there is no account that we have in Genesis of his lineage or his death or the end of his priesthood. And that is illustrative of the priesthood of Christ. That's his point. You with me? Because as far as Paul is concerned, in the next verse, he actually says, verse 4, now consider how great this man was. You see, in order for Melchizedek to be a priest for men or to function among men, he had himself to be a, a man or a human being. This is one of the rules of priests. As a matter of fact, all the priests that are recorded in the scriptures, every single one of them, they all are human beings. You don't have any non-human priests in the Bible. What is the good of a non-human priest to humans? Not much. And so Melchizedek himself had to be in that category. And uh, Paul is using the absence of the information we have to illustrate something about Christ. Not to prove something about Melchizedek. He's, he's using that to make a likeness. You with me? The point of his argument is he's not trying to give us more information about Melchizedek. He's trying to help us appreciate how Christ is like him in these aspects particularly the priesthood of Christ. I want to read to you this verse from another translation that, that brings it out and, and brings the meaning a lot better and, and alleviates some of this confusion. And this is from uh, the Syriac or the Peshitta translation, verse 3 of Hebrews 7, of whom neither his father nor his mother are written in the genealogies, nor the commencement of his days, nor the end of his life, but after the likeness of the Son of God, his priesthood remaineth forever. You see the point here? It becomes very easy to, to understand the meaning all of a sudden, right? This is the, the, this is the whole point that he's making. Unlike Aaron, whose priesthood was based on genealogy, in order for you to be a high priest under the Levitical system, you had to prove your lineage from Aaron. It was a priesthood that was inherited, that was passed on based on your birth. In other words, if you were good or, or bad, was not very relevant. What mattered was, are you? In the line of Aaron. Paul is contrasting that. says this priesthood of Melchizedek was not like that. And Christ's priesthood resembles that. That's the point that he is making. And because we don't have a record even of the end of his priesthood or his priesthood terminating, that's very representative of the priesthood of Christ, which is a forever one. Now, of course, 
this link that Paul is making here in Hebrews between the priesthood of Christ and the priesthood of Melchizedek was first recorded by David, King David in the Psalms and uh, in Psalm 110. And this is what David says. Uh, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And verse four, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the only time the word priest is mentioned in the book of Psalms. And uh, from memory, I think the only other time is a reference to Aaron. But anyway, he doesn't talk about priesthood much, but this is the only time in the entire Bible, in the Old Testament, as far as we know, where this link is made between Melchizedek and between Christ. And it says here, there's this oath that the father speaks to his son. He tells him, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then it says, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Those two are linked. I want you to keep that in mind. In other words, the sitting on the right hand of God and the priesthood, they're linked. We're going to come to that a little later as well. So like I said, I want to keep it in mind. But another aspect I want to bring out that I have noticed many times, a lot of people get confused over this order of Melchizedek. When it says you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek, what does that really mean? There is a certain assumption in a lot of people's minds that Christ is a priest or a Melchizedek priest, or that he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. But what does the word after the order of Melchizedek mean? It doesn't mean after as in point of uh, in time. It means after uh, as in likeness. That's what it means. You are a priest like Melchizedek was a priest. The priesthood of Christ is like the Melchizedek priesthood. In the way that Melchizedek was a priest, Christ is going to be a priest in a similar way. Now, there's a big difference here. I want to I put that on the board just so we don't miss it. Christ is not a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay? And Christ is not a priest from the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is like that of Melchizedek. You see the difference? Now, many times, a lot of people's minds, we, uh, uh, we read or they read the, that Christ's priesthood is like the, uh, after the order of Melchizedek, and they assume or they deduce, well, he's a priest in that order. And as a matter of fact, Christ's priesthood is referred to as the Melchizedek priesthood. And this is what I want to clarify a little bit uh, today. Now, it's, it's not necessarily wrong to refer to Christ's priesthood as the Melchizedek priesthood. If you understand correctly that the, the name Melchizedek, Melchizedek, in the Hebrew actually means the king of righteousness. And so it's a symbolic or a typical name that the priesthood of Christ, of course, he is the ultimate king of righteousness. So in that sense, he is the fulfillment of this uh, type or the symbol. But I just want to make sure that we, we have this clear that Christ's priesthood is not identical and it's not the same as the Melchizedek priesthood. It is like it. It resembles it, particularly in the points that Paul notes in the book of Hebrews. Because there are other aspects in which the priesthood of Christ does not resemble the Melchizedek priesthood. And we're going to be exploring those uh, as well. So that's a point I want to keep in mind, important to keep that you know, in, in our memory to help us understand more about this particular uh, subject. 
So when it says, uh, God swears to his son, you're a priest forever. It means this is an oath or this is by God's appointment. It's not something that is passed on. It's not something that is inherited. It is something that God appoints by an oath. Hebrews 7.15 helps us helps illustrate this a little clearer. It says, and it is, it is yet far from evident, sorry, far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. What does the word similitude mean? Likeness. If you look it up in the, in the concordance, the meaning it means likeness. So it's not identical. It is like it. It is not. Christ was not a priest in that order or from that order, but his priesthood is like that. Uh, a type and and an antitype. Uh, the the biblical uh, or when we talk about a biblical type, it simply means it is uh, representative or illustrative. The type and the antitype, there are many examples of that. For example, you know, in, in the sacrificial system, the lamb is a type. The fulfillment of that type is Christ. That, that's what we would call the antitype. So an example or a symbol or an illustration and the fulfillment of it. The type is that and the antitype is the fulfillment. The two are not the same. You don't have the type and the antitype being identical. And... Uh, Always, the antitype or the fulfillment is always greater than the type. And uh, another point is the type always precedes, of course, the antitype. And when the antitype comes or the fulfillment comes, it replaces the, the type. These are just simple mechanics of, of this particular element of scripture. But this oath of, of, uh, that is recorded in in Psalms that David records in Psalm 110, when he says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When did this oath, or when was it fulfilled? When did it come about? When was it fulfilled? When was it realized? There are three options. I'll just put on, a, on the board here an illustration, just so we can visualize it together. Uh, this is a timeline, obviously, this is the, the cross, and uh, this is the Aaronic priesthood there. And David was living sometime approximately a thousand or so years before the cross. And there is where he recorded this particular oath in Psalm 110. That's the, in the timing. And of course, back there in the time of Abraham was when Melchizedek lived and functioned and operated as a priest. And this is the, the whole stream of time. So this is what we want to know. This oath that David records... Is it something that was fulfilled in the past? Is it something that was fulfilled during the time of David? Or is it something that was still going to be fulfilled in the future? This priesthood that is given by an oath to Christ, when does it actually come about? When does it commence? When does this fulfill? Now, I want to explore this again in detail because this is misunderstood again many, many times and it gives rise to further misunderstandings of different aspects. I want to uh, explore the, the first option, right? Was David recording something that happened in the past? Or in other words, what we're trying to uh, pinpoint is simply this. When, at what point did God tell his son, sit on my right hand, you are a priest forever, because that would be the fulfillment, right? That's what David was recording. Was this something in the past. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 7, 28. It tells us, For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, 
which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Now it says here, the word of the oath, that's referring to what David recorded in Psalm 110. And then it says the word of the oath, which was since the law. And if you look up the meaning there, I put it there to clarify. It actually means after the law. The point Paul is making here is very simple and yet very profound. He's saying, look, this word of the oath was revealed for the first time ever to anyone only through David. And that time was well after the establishment of the system of the law in which we have the priesthood of Aaron. So that nobody ever before David ever knew anything about the priesthood of Christ or its link with the Melchizedek priesthood. You with me? The first person to ever say, make that connection at all is when God, through David, when God revealed it to David in Psalm 110. And Paul is using this fact that the timing when this was given, if I want to go back to our illustration, the timing when David wrote this word of the oath was after the law. The law which has the system of the Aaronic priesthood. And what's his point here? that something was actually still to come. In other words, as far as David, uh, up, up to David's time, David was not recording something that happened in the past, but he's recording something that was to come, as we shall see. Now, if Melchizedek was the type for the priesthood of Christ, was it possible for Christ to be a priest before Melchizedek existed? I want you to think about that. Was it possible for Christ to be a priest before Melchizedek existed? The answer is no, definitely not. It's absolutely impossible. An anti-type cannot precede the type. Otherwise, you have no type. So at best, Christ's priesthood has to be sometime after Melchizedek, because Melchizedek was the type that gives us some illustrative points of what Christ's priesthood is about. And so David was not recording something of the past, so we can uh, we can cross that out. David was not revealing something that had occurred before. Well, what about during the time of David? Was David writing something of what was happening in heaven at the time? And the reason for this is the way or the wording of of the passage. And and I've had I've actually heard some people say this: the, the wording of the passage is in the present tense, meaning. In verse 4, as we read in Psalm 110, it says, uh, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't say you will be, right? It's in the present tense. And so this has led some people to conclude, well, that means it was a reality then and there in heaven, at least when David wrote that down. You with me? And uh, we want to see, is this the case or not? Because at the same time, we find that in the same passage, the, the link is with Christ sitting on the right hand of God. And it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that's, that's what I want to explore. Was, was there something about the priesthood of Christ occurring in heaven at the time of David? And that's why it was revealed to David. And David recorded it in the present tense. The book of Hebrews also gives us the answer. We'll go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. And it says... 
For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. What law is Paul addressing here when he says the law having a shadow of good things to come? He's dealing with the entire system of the law that was given on Mount Sinai, which contained all kinds of different types or symbols pointing forward to Christ as the sacrifices, as the sanctuary service and the priesthood that occurred in that sanctuary and all kinds of things, all kinds of elements. And he says, all these things were a shadow of good things to come. So, so long as the law was operating and functioning, it was pointing forward to something better that would come. What is one of these better things that would come? The better priesthood of Christ. It was better than which priesthood? The, Leve the Levitical priesthood, because that's, what, that's the priesthood that the law talks about. And of course, it is better than the Melchizedek priesthood as well. It's a superior priesthood. So all we have to do is ask ourselves a question. Was David living during the time when this law was still functional and operating, when all these types were still in place? The answer is an obvious yes. He was living in a time when there was a sanctuary, where there were priests, where there were services of offering up the lambs and the, and the, the sheep and so on and so forth. So all these things were pointing where a shadow they were not the reality. They were a shadow of good things still to come. So it was still future. And that priesthood of Christ, particularly is what we're looking at, was still future. It was still to come about. And this is why actually there was still the Levitical priesthood functioning and operating at that particular time. Notice how else Paul puts it in verse 11, Hebrews 7 and verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Very revealing verse as well. While the Levitical priesthood was functioning, Paul is saying it had a great shortcoming. It could not bring about perfection. Perfection was not by the Levitical priesthood. And Paul is using this argument to say, and this is why, this is, there was a need, there was a further need that another priest would come. Another priesthood was required, better than the Levitical priesthood, which would obviously, the implication is, obviously bring about perfection. That's the point he's making. And this superior priesthood, it would be not like Aaron's priesthood. It would actually resemble more the Melchizedek priesthood. Another priest would arise after the order of Melchizedek. Very plainly telling us that so long as the Levitical priesthood was functioning, this other priesthood was still future. It was still to come. It was still looked forward to. And this is why he tells us the law had a shadow of good things to come, but not the very image of them. It was pointing forward to something. So if we put it back in our, in our diagram, we know that therefore this priesthood of Christ could not have been, or the oath was not fulfilled, the oath about the priesthood of Christ was not fulfilled during the time of David or during the time of the Levitical priests at all. It was still something 
future to come about. Now, I want to explore this, like I said, in a bit of detail because there exists this idea in, in a lot of, uh, I've heard in discussions, a lot of people's minds, and it gives rise to all kinds of other ideas. And the idea goes along the lines of that the Aaronic priesthood, which was functional on earth during the whole time that the Aaronic priesthood was, fun was functioning, it actually served as a channel to connect people with the priesthood of Christ, which was functioning in heaven at the same time. And it was through this Aaronic priesthood that they actually gained access to the priesthood of Christ. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this or not, or if you've heard this or not, but uh, I have. And it basically amounts to uh, having two priesthoods running or operating simultaneously at the same time. If we, if we wanted to illustrate it, this is, how, this is how people illustrate it. They say, well, Christ is a priest. His priesthood is called the Melchizedek priesthood. And Christ was actually a priest from the very beginning when man fell all the way to the end. And Christ had to be a priest during this whole time because on earth, these people, as they, for example, under the Aaronic priesthood, when they interacted with the priest and brought the sanctuary, the, the lamb or the sacrifice, there had to have been a reality up there in heaven. And the Aaronic priesthood was the means or the channel to connect them with this reality that was there in heaven. Now, is this, is this true or not? Uh, the answer, well, if, if you've been listening so far, this is maybe the quiz time, okay? Uh, we found that Christ, the oath that was recorded by David was not fulfilled in the past. It was not fulfilled during David's time. In other words, during that whole time, Christ was not yet a priest in heaven. It was something that would happen in the future. And so this actually is, is a false view of the, of the priesthood of Christ. And because of these false views, it gives rise actually to false conclusions. We're going to look at some of these conclusions, like I said, a little later. But I want us to see exactly, that's why I'm going through it in a little bit detail. What does the Bible actually say? What are some of the other ideas exist uh, that exist? And it will actually help explain why some of these other conclusions are false. You see, the foundation is very important. Once you establish the right foundation, uh, the rest of the structure is sound. If you examine foundation and you find it false, it doesn't matter how much the rest of the structure looks nice, but the whole thing is condemned. The foundation is what makes a difference. This is a foundational aspect to a number of false ideas. Now, the basis for this idea is an interesting basis. Why, do people, why would someone believe that Christ was always a priest? Now, I know that there are a number of people who might believe that simply by default. Maybe it's something they haven't really thought in detail about, but just by default. Because we know to us today, the priesthood of Christ is extremely important. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's of vital importance, his ministry as our high priest. So there is an unspoken assumption. Well, that must have been how it always is, because it's so important. And so we don't perhaps stop and think. That's why I want to I give it uh, some examination. And some people might even have a very good motive when they believe that Christ was always a priest uh, from the very beginning, in that it honors Christ, perhaps, or exalts him or magnifies his office as a priest. What it does actually doesn't honor or magnify his office as a priest. It destroys the meaning of God's word. And we'll see why. But it's kind of very similar to the, to the person who might believe in the Trinity and say, well, Christ, Christ was never really begotten of the Father. And their motive many times is, 
They want to make him as old as the father, thinking that that would magnify him and honor him and, and give him some more importance. You're familiar with that reasoning, right? So there's sometimes a good motive to believing wrong things and non-biblical things. So we're not dealing with the motive as much, but I just want to explain it that uh, not everyone who believes error is necessarily intentionally believing so or is you know devious and mischievous about it and trying to deceive everyone. Some people are honestly deceived for a good reason, for a good motive. One of the interesting reasons I've heard why this Christ had to be a priest during the same time is as we read earlier, and, uh, and here's another verse actually that says it, uh, about the shadow. Hebrews 8.5 says the following, who serve, speaking of the Levitical priesthood and, and, and the services of, of the sanctuary and so on, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. And this is the idea that all these things in the priesthood and so on are referred to as a, a shadow, right? And so therefore this must prove that Christ was a priest in heaven. I want to explore what Moses was shown in the mount first and foremost. I want, and then I want to look at the meaning of shadow. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this or not. But what was Moses shown in the mountain? Let me be a bit more specific. Did God show Moses the heavenly sanctuary or the earthly sanctuary in the mount? I want you to think very carefully. Maybe I should, I, don't, I won't ask for answers. Maybe that's putting some people on the spot. I want you to think about that. I guess the simple answer would be he was shown what he built, right? What he built on earth is what he was shown. A lot of people uh, assume, and in my discussions with people, I am familiar with this reasoning that exists, uh, that what Moses was shown in the mountain was actually the heavenly sanctuary. And on earth, he built a small scale model or a small scale replica of it. But I want you to keep something in mind. If Moses in any way altered or made a small scale of what he was shown in the mountain, then he did not fulfill what God told him. God told them, do it according to the pattern that was shown you in the mount. What God did basically in the mountain was very simply this. He showed Moses the plans of what Moses was to build exactly and in detail. Down to all the lengths and, and uh, dimensions that we have recorded in, in the books of Moses as to the building of the sanctuary. He wasn't showing Moses, look Moses, here's the great original. And I want you to just make something that resembles that on earth. No, he was shown the pattern of what he actually built which is a reflection of the heavenly. So don't get me wrong, there's definitely a heavenly sanctuary. But I want you to think about it this way, just to help illustrate my point. We know that in the most holy place, the, the, the ark that contains the Ten Commandments and on the ark is the mercy seat. That represents God's throne, correct? More or less, if you study some of the typology and symbols in the scriptures. Around the throne of God are there real cherubs or are there statues of cherubs okay think about that is there a real angel or two at least there are two real angels or are there only images or statues of them i would i would i would think that from the other passages in the bible it makes it very clear that there are real living angels okay so here's a question which one was moses shown in the mount which pattern was Moses shown in the mount. He was shown the pattern that he built. 
So that's why we're saying what God showed Moses in the mountain was the plans of what Moses was to build. Moses, this is what it should look like. This is how you're going to do it. And this, all of this illustrates the greater reality of the heavenly. But Moses replicated precisely what he was shown. That's why I was saying he was shown what he built. Uh, an interesting point, just to keep in mind, because uh, it helps clarify some other things. And so, when it comes to the shadow, and this is the reason is why I wanted to clarify that, because a lot of people say, well, see, shadow. The shadow, the earthly things, the earthly sanctuary and, and the services and all these things were a shadow of... The heavenly, or a reflection of the heavenly. And, and the reasoning or the argument goes like this. A tree has a shadow, right? Can the shadow exist without the tree? No. And so people say, see, the law had a shadow of all these things. In other words, all these things were in existence at the same time that the shadow was in existence on earth. In other words, because it's a shadow, it actually proves that there was a reality functioning then and there in Heaven, in other words, there was a priesthood functioning in the heavenly sanctuary. You see that reasoning? It makes a lot of good sense, right? Except for one little problem. I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but this is the problem. The word shadow that is used in the scriptures that Paul uses, we looked at the two verses in Hebrews that talk about shadows in chapter, eight and verse, uh, chapter 10 and chapter 8. The word shadow is used there as a metaphor not as a literal shadow of a tree. Obviously, it's a metaphor, it's representative. It's not like your shadow or my shadow that is literal. So can you have a shadow, a metaphorical shadow that exists without the existence of what it represents or what it is a shadow of? Yes, of course you can. Even when it comes to uh, tangible things. I'm gonna show you an example of that, but you see the difference here. And this is an important difference, literal, and metaphorical or representative. And it's very clear in the scriptures, Paul says that the law, that entire system, was a shadow of good things to come, not things that were existing then and there in heaven. It's on a timeline? Yes, exactly. And this is why we're talking about the timeline. And so this idea of a shadow, you need to be uh, you know, mindful of how some of the reasoning is to interpret the meanings of words in the scripture. It gives rise to false ideas and sounds very convincing sounds very appealing well yeah well this is why and this is why people say see the shadow the ironic priesthood was a shadow on earth because there was the real priesthood in heaven casting its shadow on earth and as you interacted with this shadow it actually gave you access it was a channel to connect you with the real one that was functioning in heaven after all the tree has a shadow well this is why we're saying the metaphor is important is important to keep in mind here is an example of a shadow of something that can exist before the reality exists. This is a very important landmark for us, the Sydney Opera House, okay? You know, before they built the Sydney Opera House, they had a little small-scale model to illustrate what they were planning to build. And when that small-scale model existed, there was nothing in the harbor yet. They hadn't built anything yet. It was years later that they actually constructed it and built the thing. This is like a, it's like, you know, architects would build something, they would design it on paper and, and so on. So what God gave to Moses was a small scale shadow. And the word for all of that, the biblical word for that, this uh, small scale model of what you would build or the, the plans, the biblical word for it is shadow. 
And this is how Paul is using it. God gave to Moses this illustration in the Levitical priesthood, in the entire system of the law, of all these good things that God was planning to do that Paul says were going to come. And uh, I hope you can see the point. Here's another one. This is, this is a picture of me and my wife on our wedding day. It's a, it's a bit unclear there. But anyway, the, before our wedding day, we had a very interesting event. The night before, we had a rehearsal. And in the rehearsal, she wasn't wearing her, her, her wedding dress. I wasn't wearing, we were just wearing, you know, casual clothes. And, and all the people who were involved in the wedding were there and the pastor was there. And we, we went through the motions of where everyone will stand and what we will do and so on and so forth. That was a rehearsal. God gave the entire system of the law as a big rehearsal and everything that was involved in of what would come. It doesn't mean that our wedding happened then and there. It doesn't mean that there was a, a real wedding happening. It was happening at the same time. It was going to happen in the future. This is how Paul is using this particular word. And so uh, it's not a strange or a bizarre concept, but it's important to see how we identify it. So shadow in the scriptures used of the law is not a literal shadow. It's not like there was something there casting a shadow. It was a type. So if we go back to our illustration, uh, well, uh, the timeline. So it was future from David. How future was it from David? Let's see, Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. We're familiar with this passage. It says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Again, a very familiar passage that we like to quote to demonstrate that this plan of salvation, what the council of peace means here, is this plan of salvation was between how many beings? Two beings. But I don't want us to miss the point that Zechariah is making here. All these things that he is prophesying about the branch who would come. This branch is none other than Christ, right? This was a prophecy of something that would happen in the future. The word shall there, that's future. It's used seven times in this passage. When Christ would come, all these things shall happen. One of them, a very important one of them that we are focusing on, is that he, where is our laser here? He shall be what? A priest upon his throne. So as late as Zechariah, at least, we know up till that time in history, Christ was not yet a priest. He was still going to be a priest. It's actually linked with him coming as the branch. That's referring to him coming as a man and linked with all these other aspects. The Council of Peace is also future here as well. That's an interesting point. I'm not going to get into that, <clears throat> but it is uh, food for thought. So Christ was still to be a priest in the future. Now, the, the verse we read earlier is that Christ would not be called after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Why not after the order of Aaron? Some might say, I thought Aaron's priesthood was representative of Christ. It is in some aspects and not in others. The points that Paul was focusing on was the similarity between Christ and the Melchizedek priesthood. Why did he pick Melchizedek and not Aaron? We have more details about Aaron. We have more uh, examples of the services that the Aaronic priesthood carried out that teach us a lot about the priesthood of Christ. For example, the Day of Atonement. 
All of this stuff about the Day of Atonement, we learn from the Levitical priesthood. We don't learn that from the Melchizedek priesthood. So why didn't Paul say after Aaron? It, it would seem to make a lot more sense. Why Melchizedek? There are a few interesting reasons. And we look at the similarities and differences. It helps us to understand what the point that's being made. The Melchizedek priesthood was a superior one to the Aaronic priesthood. Because if you remember the story, when Abraham met Melchizedek, the Bible says that he paid tithes to him. And then Melchizedek blessed him. And then Paul makes the point that the lesser is blessed of the greater. And then he makes this interesting observation. I don't know if you remember the, the passage or not, but you can look it up in Hebrews. He says, for I say this, that Levi, who was in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. You remember that? Proving that if he paid tithes to him and Melchizedek blessed him, therefore Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. In other words, the Melchizedek priesthood is a superior one to the Levitical because even Levi, who was to come out of Abraham, in essence, paid tithe to Melchizedek. That's the point he's making. This is why he's, he's, he's showing that just like the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Aaronic, so Christ's priesthood is like the superior one. So it's not on the ex exact same level as the Aaronic. It's not an inferior one. It's not just an earthly one. It's a superior one. He uses the contrast between Aaron and Melchizedek to illustrate the contrast between Christ and Aaron and all the other earthly priesthoods. So th does that make sense? Do you see the point? That's, that's what he's talking about in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the Aaronic priesthood was not by an oath. God did not have to appoint every high priest every time. God set it up, but then every high priest was not appointed by an oath. It was simply an inheritance. Christ's priesthood is not like that. And this is the difference. Uh, and so the Aaronic was a changeable priesthood. The priesthood of Christ is not changeable. Of course, the priests died and all they offered were animal sacrifices. Christ's priesthood is much more superior to that. The Aaronic priesthood officiated and functioned in an earthly temple and was only an earthly priesthood. The priesthood of Christ uh, does not officiate in an earthly temple as far as structure is concerned, buildings, and it's a heavenly priesthood. And of course, the priesthood of Aaron, we just read, could not make perfect. That's why there, there was need for another better priesthood that could make perfect. So. Uh, I'll just press on, we're almost done with, we're, we, we might have two parts for this, but uh, we're almost there. Uh, we'll go back to our chart and we'll see. Zechariah lived a lot closer to the cross than David. And even from the time of Zechariah, as we just found, he says Christ would still be a priest when he would come. And so he was pointing forward to yet a future event that would come about, when, which would bring about the commencement of the priesthood of Christ. Now, why am I going to such detail, almost, you know, uh, annoying detail to this? Like, we know this. This is so basic now. Uh, because, brothers and sisters, grave errors are held by many honest people. Because some of these basic foundations that seem to make so much sense to us are misunderstood. You with me? That's why I'm really, I want to prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. So that it is clear from the scriptures. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. It says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also 
of the law. Again, I want you to think about what the Bible says here. The priesthood being changed. Which priesthood is he talking about? He's talking about the Levitical priesthood. That's the context of the passage because he says it's under this priesthood that they receive the law. And he says this priesthood being changed, there is a change of the law. When you, when you change a priesthood, what does that mean? Why don't you think about that? When you change something, it's no longer the same. A priesthood was going to change. Something was going to stop and something else was going to start. That proves clearly that the two priesthoods could not have been running simultaneously. Isn't that right? If the two were then, like, like we have in our, in our chart here, this the false view that, that we mentioned. Uh, sorry, before we go to our verse. If the two priesthoods are running at the same time, then there was no change of priesthoods. The priesthood would not change from one to the other. For it to change from one to the other means the other was not yet here. And the point of change is where you see this transition or this shift it wouldn't the words would not make sense if both were running at the same time and this is the point that paul is making he's telling the hebrews we have the reality now don't stay fixated on the earthly levitical priesthood that's over it's been changed and because the priesthood is changed there is also of necessity a change of the law the whole system is changed something changed and the point of change in the book of Hebrews is, of course, the coming of Christ as a man. That's his point. So I'm just using that to illustrate another aspect, that these two priesthoods were not simultaneous. The change was from the Levitical priesthood to the Christ priesthood, which was like Melchizedek's priesthood. So it wasn't changing from, from Aaron to Melchizedek. It was changing from Aaron to the fulfillment of the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay, I just want to keep that clarification because... Christ did not, uh, Christ did not, uh, let me, let me re rephrase that. The, the Melchizedek priesthood, one of the unique features of the Melchizedek priesthood is that there is only one solitary priest in it. Who was the priest in the Melchizedek priesthood? The man Melchizedek. Christ's priesthood is like that. In that, his priesthood only has one solitary priest in it. No one else. It's Christ. You see, this is why Christ could not be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Because then you would have how many priests in that order? Two, and that would destroy the whole point. You with me? That's why we're saying Christ Melchizedek is, uh, Christ's priesthood is like it. It is not it. It's not identical to it. It's the greater reality and fulfillment of what Melchizedek was the type. Uh, a clarification that is important to keep in mind. And so, this change of priesthood... To occur means something stopped and something else started. And this is where we see uh, what we see when Christ came. Now, we, we looked earlier at the link between Christ sitting on the right hand of God when the oath was made that he would be a priest. God told him, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When did Christ sit on the right hand of God? Now, someone, after his ascension, someone might say, well, you know, Christ is saying he always was at the right hand of God. And so he always was a priest. This is how some people might reason it. Uh, but after he was glorified, yes, that's exactly right. What, what the, the reference for Christ sitting on the right hand of God is in relation to his work as our Savior. 
In other words, he would sit on the right hand of God as one of us, as the savior of men, as a representative for men. And in that capacity, it would then be a particular benefit to men and accomplish the salvation of men. That's the point. Christ sitting on the right hand of God or sharing the Father's throne as he would have as the divine son of God was not enough to accomplish our salvation. He had to be a man. You with me? It doesn't... Uh, Christ... Uh, this is a whole different study. I don't want to get into it. But the plan of salvation required Christ to defeat Satan. To do that, he had to be a man like us because it was men or humanity that Satan had defeated and captured. And uh, we were enslaved to sin and Satan. That's why it had to be one of us who would break that open, break that free. That's why he had to be a man. Christ defeating Satan as the divine son of God that he was uh, is great, but it does not prove anything for us or doesn't practically help us. That's why he had to be a man, even though they had a fight in heaven before and Satan was kicked out and Christ defeated him and cast him out of, Satan, uh, out of heaven. But Satan, who took a hold of earth and humanity, had to be defeated by one of us in order for that victory to be of relevance to us. I'm just summarizing a whole heap of stuff here in, in, in this little, little paragraph. But that's the point. And so sitting on the right hand of God is in the context of the plan of salvation. Because he talks to him about uh, until his enemies are made his footstool. So they are enemies. So this is in the context of the great controversy. There is people who are for, who are against. There is a battle. And part of sitting is, of course, receiving this fulfillment of him being a priest. And so that's why I'm asking, when did Christ sit on the right hand of God in this context? And of course, as some of you have said, of course, after he ascended. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that. Interesting, that's the beginning of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews deals with this whole subject in detail. Paul starts the foundation for the book of Hebrews with this. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now he's sitting there as a victorious human being. That's when Christ sat on the right hand of God. This is when God told him, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And it was at that time, then, that Christ commenced his priesthood, or the oath was fulfilled. Because when he sat down, then God also tells him, thou art a priest forever, like Melchizedek was, after the order of Melchizedek. And so if we put this in our diagram, we find that Christ's priesthood actually commenced after his ascension. And this is why a little later in that chapter, Hebrews chapter 1, you'll find that Christ was actually anointed with the oil of gladness. In other words, he was anointed as the high priest of his people only after he took on humanity. We're going to see that a bit more in detail, but I just want to leave it there and uh, we'll continue in our part two. But I want us to, the whole point is we want to uh, understand better the priesthood of Christ, and appreciate better what it took for him to become this priest. And then when we, then we can have a right understanding of the sanctuary doctrine. You know, if you, if you believe there is a building in heaven, but you misunderstand the priesthood of Christ and when it began, then do you really have the sanctuary doctrine correctly? No. And so it's not just about believing there is a building in heaven. The priesthood and the ministry of Christ, how does that relate to us? What did Christ go through to obtain that? Was that always there? Or did that something happen after? We're seeing in the Bible, it happened after the cross. Why? And what practical relevance does that have for us today? That's what we're going to explore a little bit more in detail in part two. So we'll leave it there for now. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.